We are comfortable calling Jesus our friend or helper or the one who loves us. But when we come to this part of the Apostles' Creed, our minds recoil from such an idea of Jesus as judge. It's clear in Holy Scriptures that God has given the authority to judge to Jesus the Son. Join pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss the implications of judgment and why for Christians it is something we can long for and we can actually look forward to. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. How are you doing today, Bruce? I'm doing fine, Kirk. You know, that somebody said to me the other week that I must have a face that was made for a podcast. That's not nice. No, I I, I, I don't think that was a compliment, but, no. uh, but at least they're listening to the podcast, so that's right, a good thing. Right. You, well, you have docile tones, so you do have the... Docile uh, tones. Yeah, so you have... Uh, you certainly have a voice for podcasts. Okay. Well, thank you, Kirk. And, and you are our brilliant scholar. You truly are the talent, so I'm glad to have you here. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, we are talking about this area of the creed that I think most Christians give it pause when we talk about judgment. We say he will judge the living and the dead. And what does that mean? And will I be judged? And, you know, all kinds of things come into mind. Yeah, Steve pointed that out in his sermon this past Sunday. Uh, we like the idea of justice, but uh, when you say judging, then, then we get a little nervous. Right, exactly. Well, uh, Pastor Steve preached on the Romans text, uh, chapter 12, 9 through 20. Would you like to read that? Uh, I will read that. Yes, and I'd like to read that. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So I'll start the reading a little bit before Pastor Steve did on Sunday, and I'll start it reading Romans chapter 12, verse 9, because that's a, one of my favorite verses, and I'll explain why mm. in, in a bit. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to, dr to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a great passage. Uh, wonderful passage. Uh, like most New Testament letters, the book of Romans 
comes to a certain point near the end and they give ethical instructions, mm. kind of the practical advice. And this was a common pattern of letters in the first century AD. You'd always have the kind of the greeting and then the main part of the letter. And then you would have these wise words, these ethical instructions before the final greeting. Mm. And we see that same pattern in the New Testament letters. So in the book of Romans, you have a lot of uh, theology. Uh, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are all about uh, what's the relationship between the church and Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And that's the last major theological section of Romans. And then in Romans chapter 12 begins the ethical section, the wise words, uh, how to live out life as a Christian. Hmm. And um, when I was in high school, my friends and I love Romans chapter 12, verse 9 in particular. In Greek, it reads, hey agape anupakritas, which means let love be real, let love be general, genuine. Mm. Uh, it's uh, the um, word hypocrite, and before that a prefix, which means don't be a hypocrite, mm. be real. Uh, and we loved it so much, we used to greet one another with those words in Greek. So we were real geeky yeah. <laughs> in high school. Uh, but uh, I love that as a kind of a, a starting place because then you begin that reading with the word love and you end with the word good, hmm. overcome evil with good. So yeah. great wise words to live by. And there's some wisdom literature that they quote in that uh, section from, uh, I believe, Proverbs, right? Right. Uh, Proverbs 25 and verses 21 through 22. Which is a section about uh, do something good for your enemies, and it's like putting burning coals on their head, which is kind of tough to uh, figure out exactly what's going on there. There have been some suggestions about a practice where you would um, uh, coals that are carried on the head as a as something good, mm -hmm. uh, and the early Christian commentators, as they tried to figure out what that means, it says, "Well, we know it doesn't mean doing bad things for your neighbors." You, you, uh, we are to love our neighbors. Mm -hmm. And if we do good to our neighbors, it, it may make them feel guilty and think twice about the ways that they're treating us. Mm -hmm. And it may change their behavior. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a Chinese proverb that goes sort of like that. It says, uh, meet good with good, that good may be maintained. Meet evil with good, that good may be created. And that really picks up on something Pastor Steve mentioned in the sermon about, in a general way, if you look at right and wrong, all cultures throughout human history have had basically the same idea of the good or of virtue. Uh, in fact, there was something that we were talking about recently at ASU when we had that conference on faith and science. Mm. Uh, that was the theme of it, virtue. And maybe there's a need to return to virtue that common good expressed uh, throughout the centuries and throughout human cultures. Even though we may have some differences on uh, the finer points of virtue, there's broad consensus on what is virtue. And uh, to care for one's enemies, to not uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, that's certainly something that you see across cultures. Well, Pastor, Steve talked a lot about judgment in, in relationship to social justice, you know, 
And we wanted to talk a little bit on our podcast today about the second coming. Yes, because that's the other part of the lines that we're looking at in the Apostles' Creed. From there, he, Christ, will come to judge the living and the dead. So certainly we'll talk about justice, but let's also talk about the second coming. Mm -hmm. There are several different terms that are used in the New Testament uh, when we talk about Christ's second coming. Uh, the most common word is parousia, but, uh, and we'll get into that, but there's some other terms that are used. Uh, one of those is the day of the Lord, and this is an expression you find in the Old Testament quite a bit. Mm -hmm. The day of the Lord, it's the day of the Lord's judgment. So when God brings justice finally. Mm -hmm. uh, we see that um, mentioned uh, also in the New Testament as a way to talk about Christ's second coming. In Acts 17, verse 31, we read, for he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. So then, very much talking about Christ being the judge that is coming and that coming day of the Lord. Or in Second Peter chapter 3, uh, at the end of verse 11, we read, You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Mm. So that's one of the ways the early church talked about uh, Christ's second coming, the day of the Lord. A second term is Maranatha. Yes. Uh, Lord comes. And of course, that was very uh, much used in the Jesus movement in the 1970s, Maranatha. Mm -hmm. It's an Aramaic expression. The uh, Mara is the God part, the Natha is the come part. So the Lord comes. Uh, third use, a uh, word that is used, a Greek word, is epiphania, which means, uh, or we think of uh, epiphany, mm -hmm. epiphane, and that is a term that means to appear. Mm -hmm. And we see that in Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, epiphane means appearing, mm -hmm. disappearing in his kingdom. A fourth term is apocalypsis. Uh, this has to do with um, something that is revealed, something hidden that is revealed. Mm -hmm. We see that in Romans 1, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then the main word in the New Testament that's used for Christ's second coming is parousia. And that comes from a Greek root word meaning to be present with which is a lovely thought that mm -hmm. Christ's coming means that we will be present with Christ. Mm -hmm. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, a great chapter to, to look at when we think about Christ's second coming. We read, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive or left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And that uh, word there for coming or being present with is parousia. Mm. So uh, it's great that we have this wide vocabulary and a tradition of ways that Christians who have gone before us have thought about Christ's return. Uh, we also have different ways that the New Testament talks about it, not just the words they use, but the meaning behind it. And there are at least five significant things the New Testament uh, describes for us about what the coming again of Christ will mean. Mm -hmm. 
First, it brings about the final conquest of the devil and his forces. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. Second, it brings about the final judgment of the world. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It completes the redemption of the redeemed. We see that in, say, uh, 1 John chapter 3, and uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a chapter we mentioned before. Fourth, it brings the whole of history to its climax and fulfillment. We see that in the book of Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 21. And finally, it establishes once for all the public vindication and glorification of Jesus. We see that in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. So the Christians of Paul's era, probably, thought that the Perugia, uh, his second coming, was around the corner. Yes. And how, how do we now, 2,000-some years, maybe, um, removed, um, what, are we, or what are we to make of that and... And how does that, how do we deal with that, that he hasn't come yet, and we're start like, start to begin to think, oh, he's never coming. Well, you can look throughout the last 20 centuries of Christian experience, and you always have, whatever the generation is, uh, Christians thinking, Christ's return may be very soon. Mm. So it's this present hope that we have. Christ loves us, we love Christ so much, and one day we will see him. And that's a great hope and, and something that keeps us going. Uh, now, the Bible also says that for the day, uh, for the Lord, one day is, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as is as one day. Mm-hmm. So from God's perspective, you know, he's, he's never late. He, <laughs> he's always on time. Right. You know, we just don't know the timing of that. Right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, we're just charged to be ready and to be watchful. And as Pastor Steve says, and, and for us who trust in Christ, it's a good thing. His return is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, won't it be wonderful? Won't it be wonderful one day when yeah, Christ returns? I used to um, go to uh, this bookstore. It was across from my office on Central Phoenix. It was Central Christian Supply, I think. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And they had a large used book section. And... Um, what I always found very interesting was the largest section of used books was books on eschatology. Eschatology being a study of the end times, including yeah. when Christ will return. Yeah, so there's, you know, this book, he's coming, and uh, they put a date on it, and he doesn't come. <laughs> right, which is why they go into the used book section. Yes. Yeah, and for our, our Scrabble plane listeners, eschatology has more than eight letters, so you, you can't use it in Scrabble, so oh. so you don't have to memorize eschatology. Okay. But it does mean the study of the last time. Well, we should study the prophets, and we have a text that we think speaks to this issue of coming again and uh, the day of the Lord from Amos. Right, and particularly about God's sense of justice. So this is from Amos chapter 5. Amos was a shepherd uh, and a dresser of sycamore fig trees. Mm. So uh, not the normal kind of person that's called to be a prophet. Uh, So he has a unique perspective on God's concern for people of uh, kind of working class people because Amos was a working class person. 
Well, let me read that for us. That's Amos 5, 18 through 24. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hands on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. So Amos is condemning people who thought, well, I show up for worship, so everything must be good between me and God. I don't have to worry about the coming of God's day of judgment. And Amos was saying, well, no, he can't just you know, show up for worship and then not follow what God says, uh, especially your treatment of other people. Uh, don't think that you, you get before the judgment seat of God and you say, well, I showed up to church. Doesn't that cover everything? He says, no. <laughs> what are you doing in your life? Mm. How, do you, how are you living out uh, your faith in God 24-7? Uh, you have some other references for uh, for Amos, correct? I do, and these uh, in particular talk about this idea of justice being found in the gates of a city. Mm. So in the same chapter of Amos, we see in uh, verse 10, they hate the one who reproves in the gate, and they hate the one who speaks the truth. Uh, being uh, That's a parallel sentence, meaning uh, those who would speak the truth would speak the truth in the gate of a city. Mm. And uh, a little further down in verse 15, it says, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. So you may be wondering, Kirk, you may be asking, why in the world is all this connection between justice and the gates of a city? Bruce, why is it that there's so much justice at the gates of the city? (laughs) Well, funny you should ask, because that's what we're talking about in our bit on archaeology, this uh, part of our podcast today. The city gate was this uh, place where it was like a a court of law Mm -hmm. and uh, a local place where gossip was shared, a place if somebody had something to say, they'd stand up and start proclaiming that. Mm. Uh, So it serves a lot of different social functions in ancient cities. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. I remember in our Ruth study, or the sermon series, we talked about the the gate and the importance of the gate. That's right. When Boaz decides that he's going to marry Ruth and be the uh, redeemer kinsman, mm-hmm. he has to make that official in the gates of the city. All the elders would gather. You know, in Scottsdale, the real business of the city didn't happen in the city hall in the Kiva. The real hap- uh, business of the city would always take place at Pishki's when that restaurant was around. All the real deals in the city happen at Pishki's. Right. But uh, Pishki's is no longer there. So uh, it's probably some other place where the real business of the city takes place. (laughs) 
But in ancient cities, it was the city gate. And so we see different examples of this. Uh, you mentioned it, Ruth, um, and the story of Ruth, where Boaz makes that official. Uh, Abraham, when he is buying a plot of ground to be used as a family burial plot, he has to make that purchase official in the gates of the city. Uh, Lot, when he's uh, waiting for the, what end up being angels of God, he meets them at the gates of the city. Uh, so we see this again and again. I remember when I was in Spain and I was in, we, we visited Madrid and then we traveled to a small community that was north of there. I can't remember the name of it, but I remember there was some kind of a political, it seemed like it was a political discussion, but all the elders of the town all went to hear this uh, proclamation and, and they were all just standing ar around uh, some kind of political discussion. Right. And did that happen at the gates of the city? Well, I don't know if they had formally gates to the city. But there's always but a it, place. Uh, it was a place, and it didn't seem to me like it was in a, you know, it didn't look like a government building or anything like that. Yeah. So uh, in, in Amos, when he talks about the gates of the city, it's this sense of uh, when you make judgments in your community, mm -hmm. let's make sure that they're just and they're righteous. The difference between a city and a village is a city has a wall and therefore a gate to get inside the city walls. Uh, and it's, we know a lot about the construction of city gates because we've uncovered a number of city gates from the biblical period. There were th uh, three gates in particular, the gates of uh, Gezer and Hatsor and Megiddo. Uh, three very large tells or archaeological sites uh, in the Holy Land uh, that were all mentioned as cities that King Solomon fortified. And so when those cities began to be excavated, people wondered about what kind of city defenses would be present. And you can see that in the gates of the cities and, and what we find there. You might want to explain to our, for our listeners what a tell is. Right, a tell means ruin, and a tell is a place where you go to dig an ancient city. So from time immemorial till the Persian period, people would build a city in the same spot. And so after a while, uh, they continue to build on the rubbles of previous centuries, and so the tell gets higher and higher and higher. The Persian period, this, they decide that's no way to build a city, and they moved off of the right, <laughs> ancient tells. Right. Yeah, I think we talked about that maybe in our in the previous series of podcasts. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So the typical structure of a, a very large city gate that you'd find in the Holy Land, you would have uh, six inner chambers. They were large enough where you could do a, a stall or where a number of people could gather for judgment. Mm. Uh, that would happen in the city gates. So that's a little bit of archaeology that helps us understand the biblical concept of justice and people making right judgments. That's great. Thank you, Bruce. Well, we have uh, looked at our eco-essential tenants each week. And uh, what do you have from, the, from our essential tenants? Right. So again, the essential tenets is that faith statement, that basic faith statement that all eco-pastors and eco-elders and eco-D 
deacons agree that they will abide by. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that statement, those essential tenets, we also have the eco-confessional standards, which are other statements of faith in previous centuries that are also good for instructions that teach us about doctrine and give in some systematic way an explanation of what the Bible teaches us to believe and to do. Mm. So from the essential tenets itself, we have this statement about the return of Christ. We read, This mystery of the Incarnation is ongoing, for the risen Jesus, who was sent from the Father, is now ascended to the Father in his resurrected body and remains truly human. This is something we talked about in our previous podcast, that uh, Jesus, when he ascends, he ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father. He is, still has a form. Mm-hmm. He's not just all spirit. He has a body. Mm-hmm. And that body is a human body. Human flesh is in heaven now. And then the essential tenet goes on. He is bodily present at the right hand of the Father. When we are promised that one day we will see him face to face, we acknowledge that it is the face of Jesus of Nazareth we will someday see. The one who, for us and for our salvation, was born of Mary, died at Calvary, and walked with disciples to Emmaus, is the same Jesus Christ who is now ascended and who will one day return visibly in the body to judge the living and the dead. Very good. Very complete. Yes, talking about the uh, literal and physical return of Christ to earth. Makes me think we're going to be surprised when we see him because we see all these white Jesus with blue eyes and you know, flowing hair. <laughs> flowing blonde hair. Yes. <laughs> Pro- probably unlikely that Jesus looked like that. Yeah. yeah. He's going to look like a uh, first century Jew. Right. Uh, I love that um, Christmas carol about how we have different images of Jesus depending on our culture, mm. uh, but how Jesus loves us all. Right. Yeah. Well, from our eco-confessional standards, we have the Heidelberg Catechism. And question 52 says, What comfort does the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead give you? And the answer is, In all affliction and persecution, I may await with head held high the judge from heaven who has already submitted himself to the judgment of God for me and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation. But he shall take me, together with all his elect, to himself into heavenly joy and glory. So the return of Christ is not something that is academic. It's not just a a theory we hear about, but something that's meaningful. Uh, We will love it when he comes. Mm. Sometimes we think about the return of Christ in um, some size by vision of a world gone wrong, great disasters, you know, floods, famines, tornadoes, other natural disasters, and then Christ returns. Mm -hmm. And the Bible, of course, speaks about wars and rumors of wars before he returns. Mm -hmm. And yet, it is a thing we hope for and we long for. We long for Christ's return just like we long for true justice to happen. You know, there's been so much bad news um, that 
has gone on in the last few weeks. So, so many uh, mass shootings in the United States. You look around the world, other horrible things happening mm-hmm. in uh, Ukraine. In the Central African Republic, there have been roving gangs that have been killing people in their homes. Just tough things all around, some of which we don't hear about too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do hear about is enough for us to make us turn off the news entirely. Yes. Well, and we've been looking at the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, and this is looks like it's from the larger catechism. This is the from the confession itself. Mm. Uh, where it talks about the last judgment. There's a whole chapter on the return of Christ in that, which is instructive, I thought. Mm. So maybe, uh, Kirk, you and I can read alternate uh, paragraphs of this. Uh, It begins with this paragraph. God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostle, uh, apostolate angels will be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Mm. Apostate angels. Apostate angels. I did yeah. not pronounce it right. Apostate yeah. angels. Yeah. Bad ones. The bad ones. Yeah. They're going to get judged. That's right. And and all people, too. Yes. <laughs> and number two says, the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked, who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast into eternal torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So really dividing all people mm. into whether they've trusted in Christ. So this goes back to that belief, that central belief in grace. We don't earn our way into heaven because of what we've done, mm. but because of his mercy, God's mercy shown to us in Christ. Mm. Uh, we can accept that. But those people that choose to go their own way they can't go their own way, even though that way leads to destru- destruction. That reminds me of Pastor Steve's sermon where he, he told the story of when he had to go see the judge and he found out the judge that they were going to see was kind of a tough judge. And he was anxious about that. But he says, how great would it have been if I knew the judge and if he knew me? And this is kind of that kind of reminds me of this number two that, you know, we don't have to be fearful about it because we know the judge and he knows me. And I especially appreciate the wording here, fullness of joy and refreshing, Mm. which comes from the presence of the Lord. Yeah. And sometimes we experience that today. You know, when we're in worship together, we feel refreshed by that or when we're praying on our own, we take things before God, we feel refreshed Mm. after doing so. Yeah. 
a little I, bit of heaven we experience in our day-to-day lives. I don't know about you, but I felt refreshed at the ordination service for Jackie Parks. Wasn't Sunday. that glorious? Yes. How, how many people were, were breaking down, almost crying? Yes. I know. Crying with joy. Tears it was, of joy. Yeah, it was very refreshing. I thought that Luke did a tremendous job and just a great message and so refreshing for the occasion. Mm-hmm. Mm. A lot of answers to prayer mm. uh, right in that one afternoon. Definitely. So the third part of this chapter in the Westminster Confession on the Last Judgment reads, As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all people from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to humans that they may shake off all cardinal security and be all always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Mm. Amen. Yeah, it's beautiful. So each week we've been looking at a different apostle. Sometimes we have two. This week we're looking at Philip. So Philip, again, one of the 12 apostles, and he's associated in the Middle Ages, at least he was associated with the phrase, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. By the way, the old way you would say that in English is the quick and the dead. Yes. So at Princeton Seminary, to cross from the seminary proper to get to the library, you'd have to cross a very busy street. Mm. And when I started seminary, there was no crossway where you could you know, push a button and all of a sudden there'd be a, a, a stoplight that would stop the traffic so you could cross safely. And so it was a great example for us as seminarians of the quick and the dead. If you're going to get to the library, you've got to be quick <laughs> or it'd be very dangerous. Yeah. Anyway. So, well, and Pastor Steve talked a little bit about that, that that's an old English word for for dead that we don't use anymore. Uh, old English or, word mean, for living. For living, rather, yeah. Yes. We should know the difference between the living and the dead. Yes. That's right. So uh, Philip, uh, he was from the town of Bethsaida, as a couple of, of the other apostles were from. And he's the one at the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, Jesus asks uh, Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people? Uh, and uh, the gospel writer uh, says that, well, Jesus asked this. He already knows what's going to happen. But just trying to take the disciples on a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Philip answers uh, Jesus, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So uh, very practically minded. Uh, we don't know a lot about Philip from the Gospels, but tradition says that he uh, later uh, traveled down to Egypt and was uh, martyred there. He has a Greek name, and he's the one that uh, tells Jesus about the Greek pilgrims that wanted to know more about Jesus. So it's interesting to have a disciple with a Greek name, Philip. Interesting. Well, each week we've also looked for a C.S. Lewis quote, and I know you won't let our listeners down today. What do you have? Well, there's a very famous sermon by C.S. Lewis called The World's Last Night. 
And C.S. Lewis is asking uh, a group of people that were students at Oxford University, what if the world's last night was tonight? What would that mean? So he says, someday, and what if this present were the world's last night? An absolute correct verdict, if you like, a perfect critique will be passed on what each of us is. For it will be infallible judgment. If it is favorable, we shall have no fear. If unfavorable, no hope that it is wrong. We shall not only believe, we shall know. We shall know beyond all doubt in every fiber of our appalled or delighted being that as the judge has said, so we are, neither more nor less nor other. We shall perhaps even realize that in some dim fashion we could have known it all along. We shall know and all creation will know too, our ancestors, our parents, our wives, our husbands, our children, the unanswerable and by then self-evident truth about each of us will be known to all. I do not find that pictures of physical catastrophe, that sign in the clouds, those heavens rolled up like a scroll, help one so much as the naked idea of judgment. We cannot always be excited. We can perhaps train ourselves to ask more and more often how the thing which we are saying or doing or failing to do at each moment will look when the irresistible light streams in upon it. That light which is so different from the light of this world, and yet, even now, we know just enough of it to take it into account. Women sometimes have the problem of trying to judge by artificial light how to dress. A dress will look by daylight. That is very like the problem of all of us, to dress our souls not for the electric lights of the present world, but for the daylight of the next. The good dress is the one that will face that light, for that light will last longer. Mm. God really knows who, who we are. And at the last judgment, it'll be evident to everybody who we really are. A very um, unique perspective on judgment. Mm. I hope we're known by who we know. Exactly. Right. And not, not just that you and I know one another, but we are known by Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's some deep thinking there. Well, C.S. Lewis does that from time to time. <laughs> yes, he does. And we have some deep thinking from our Reform heritage. Kirk, you have always are digging up for us different uh, things for us to ponder from our Reform heritage. Well, and this one is, again, from J.I. Packer in his book, Growing in Christ. Um, it is a, it's kind of an exposition on the Apostles' Creed. So it's been just really perfect for this study. Mm -hmm. He says, in today's world, pessimism prevails because people lack hope. They foresee only the bomb or bankruptcy or a weary old age, nothing worthwhile. And I think Pastor Steve kind of really talked a lot about that in his sermon. So I thought that was fitting. Right. He continues on. He says, communists and Jehovah Witness attract by offering bright hopes of heaven on earth. Following the revolution in one case, 
Armageddon and, and on the other. But Christians have a hope that outshines them both, the hope of which Bunyan's Mr. Stanfest said, the thoughts of what I am going to lie as a glowing coal at my heart. And the creed highlights this hope when it declares, he shall come. So that idea, and you know, C.S. Lewis talked about this too, that we, we have this idea of that this place is not our home, right? At least it's not the home we were designed for. And so right. we have this longing to be with God in heaven. And uh, that word that he uses is the book of your journal, right? As, right, Zainzucht, yeah. right. Longing. Yeah, right. longing for that heaven that we know. And here in what you just read, uh, that longing framed by hope. Yeah. We, we hope keeps us going. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the face of adversity, we have the hope of God's love and grace and the hope that we will see Christ one day with our own eyes. Mm. Yes, and that is how we say Maranatha when we see the news and when it's so terrible. Yes. We say, come quickly, Lord. No, we look up in hope. Yeah. Well, would you pray for us? As we close our session, I'd love to. Thank Let's you, pray. Person. God of hope and justice, we turn to you. There's been so much bad news lately. We cry mercy for all those who mourn today in our country and around the world. And Lord, we ask that you would give us such a vision of your grace and love such trust in your ability to keep your promise that you will one day return to earth, that we will be bullied, buoyed, that we will be lifted, that we will be sustained by the return of Christ one day. And until that day, Lord, we ask that we keep on doing those things that are good and right, those things that are pleasing to you, Help us to pursue truth and beauty and goodness as ways to honor you. And so model in our own lives that quality of life that we have seen in your Son, our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kirk.